Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast that discusses common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. My name is Matt Miller. And I'm Matt Henry. And what are we talking about? Holy Spirit. Person? Stuff. Or thing? The the personality of the Holy Spirit is what we're calling this. Um, so, because he's a person. Indeed. Yeah. Um, so last time we began with Systematic Theology 3, um, and of course with that, this Doctrine of the Spirit. And so we just started by giving some brief introduction to some of the issues that are involved with this whole topic. And we showed that there's been a historic divide, specifically in the past 100 years, with regard to two major aspects in particular on this subject. Uh, the first is with regard to the language of baptism of, with, by, and in the Holy Spirit. And then the second divide is with regard to the spiritual gifts and how those things work out. And so we gave a brief history of of these these newer movements that have taken place in the last 100 years um you remember the the rise of first wave pentecostalism in 1906 with the zusa street revival uh the rise of the second wave charismaticism in the 60s in which pentecostal theology infiltrated the mainline denominations uh so it wasn't a creating of a new denomination but it was uh, an infiltrating of those denominations that already existed uh, and then finally, shortly after that, came the rise of third wave evangelicalism, uh, in which John Wimber more or less reads the book of Acts and wonders why the church doesn't experience what the early church experienced. Uh, and that led to a further development of certain understandings with regard to the nature of the spirit. And, and much of that is still very present in churches and theology today. And so with that very brief history, uh, on why this topic is so confused and debate, debated. Um, we're going to develop this doctrine more formally and specifically here begin with the person or personality of the Holy Spirit. Right. So the personality of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is simply a divine person. Yeah. Um, he's not an energy or a power um, like the Jehovah's Witnesses would teach. Very important, though, the concept to understand that we have to have that right view of God if he's to be rightly approached and worshiped. Um, sometimes, though, it gets hard to grasp, and um, it almost requires a forced shift in our thinking. So why? Why is it hard? Well, there's some contributing factors um, with regard to the personhood. First, for, first of all, you have the good old King James rendering of the Holy Ghost. That one always irritates you, right? You don't like it when you hear that. No, because he's a person. I know, but I grew up hearing it, so it doesn't, I don't think that there, it diminishes. Because I mean, I grew up in the King James sure. version yeah. world. Um, not that it was King James only, it was just that's what everyone had. Yeah. And then the Way Bible, the Living Translation came out. Yeah. And then all the cool people had that. Now they're all using ESV. Um, anyhow, so unfortunately, the language really doesn't help in grasping the concept. Uh, you know, our minds go to Casper the ghost, the friendly ghost. Um, <laughs> well, did you grow up watching Casper? Yeah. Yeah. Of course. He was not just Casper. He's a ghost. He's the friendly the ghost. friendly ghost. Yeah. yeah. Um, which I then had a woman take all of my comic books I loaned to my friend that were Casper the Friendly Ghost comic books, and she burned them because I was promoting demonism in her home. I was shocked, stunned, and angry. <laughs> I'm like, I was like 13. I'm like, that cost me a lot of that allowance. It's like, next time, just give them back. Oh, I got an ear bending, and I was like, yeah, that was a lot of fun, lady. Anyhow, um, we also have then the subtle influence or maybe not so subtle of those concepts that we see in Star Wars. So you have the force, right? Sure. Uh, we understand, however, that the Holy Spirit is not just some ephemeral power, force, or energy field. Um, who is Rodney Howard Brown? Just Google him. That's all I can say. If you're listening to this, Google him, click on videos, and be encouraged. So apparently this whack job, calls him. he calls 
the Holy Spirit, or him, he calls himself the Holy Spirit bartender. Yeah. I see why he calls himself that. Yeah. Because he's unleashing or doling out the Spirit, causing him to fall on people. Oh, I don't think I need to watch yeah, like, a video. Like, like he has the power to give you this force called Great. the Spirit. And then Benny Hinn, who uses his Holy Ghost machine gun, uh, knocking people over. Um, this whole idea gets uh, it wrong because... The Holy Spirit is not a force or energy that you unleash, uh, but he's actually a person. And as we will see, he's also sovereign, uh, um, <laughs> which is problematic because you can't control him. You can't unleash the desire at the desire of some person's will. Yeah. So you have those Trinitarian concepts. When we call the God, we call God Father, it's easy to understand the Father as possessing personhood. When we call Christ the Son, again, we can see that personhood. Um, but when we call the third person of the Trinity Spirit, it's more conceptual. Um, and it's conceptually difficult to grasp his innate personhood. Um, for example, Jonathan Edwards' essay, did essay you, on the Trinity. Yeah. Have you read that th all the way through? Yes. I don't know if I liked all the things he said. Um, he was trying to explain the Trinity. He was. And it's like, but he's trying to do it from philosophy. And it's. Well, I loved it earlier on. And then I went to seminary I and it like, destroyed. <laughs> that yeah. Whole it's thing. like, so the father so perfectly perceives himself that he generates the son i'm like what well the the you have the father and you have the son and the divine energy or love that flows between them is the spirit in some way and so we then tap into the spirit and therefore are then engulfed in his love. I think I think it's like what we did when we did the Trinity. You're walking on thin ice when you're trying to explain it. All you can do is say, this is what it says, and then leave the mystery alone because yeah. well, it, it, you're trying it, to use words to describe that, which is infinitely beyond words. Right, and that's why language of the Holy Spirit, I mean, it's biblical language. That's how the Bible uses it. But it, it makes it conceptually difficult for us because the third member of the Trinity is not a force. He's not right, a right. an essence flowing between the Father. He's right. he's a person. Right. So anyhow, yeah. The Spirit. Uh, he he in his essay he says the Spirit is the divine energy or love that eternally existed. What you just said between the Father and Son, believers are brought into that eternal love between the Father and the Son via the Spirit. Fine, but it doesn't work because he's a person. Right. Um, so what is, what's some biblical data that uh, affirms that personhood? Right. So first we have, um, we see that the Spirit is put in coordinate relationship with the Father and the Son. Um, so Matthew 29, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in name, the name, uh, so singular, singular name, name yeah. of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit is in coordinate relationship between the Father and the Son. He's, he's equal in every sense. He's not less than. He is not just some essence flowing between the Father and the Son because they have personhood and somehow the Spirit doesn't. Um, that's not how the Bible understands it. Um, second, the Spirit is put in coordinate uh, relationship working with human beings. Um, so Acts 15, 28, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit so how can it seem good to a force? You know, right? <laughs> it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these. So again, that that affirms um, personhood. Right. Um, third, the Spirit possesses personal attributes. So intelligence. First Corinthians two ten through eleven. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. So again, there's intelligence there. Yeah, he, he knows. Uh, a force doesn't know. Exactly. Um, we see emotion with the spirit. Ephesians 4.10, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Uh, again, that shows personhood. Uh, we see volition or personal will. 1 Corinthians 12, 11, but one and the same spirit works all things, 
distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Not only does that show volition and personal will, but it's also, as we're going to see in a little bit, it shows sovereignty. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> along with that, then, we also see the spirit engaging in personal activities. Again, what we're going to say is a power, a force cannot partake of these things. So we see him speaking. So just one of a couple of examples we could give you in Acts 829, it says, then the spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. Not only is he speaking, but again, he's commanding. As God. Um, yeah. Uh, he prays in uh, Romans 8.26 in the same way the Spirit also helps. Not only is he praying there, but he's helping us. Um, he helps our weakness where we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep with words. Uh, he bears witness in Romans 8.16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. He can be lied to. This is my one of my go-tos. In Acts 5.3, where Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the lamb? Yeah. Um, so, but you take all that stuff together and there's no way you can make that then become uh, a force. And so these are the kinds of things you would, I would tell people if they, are, they, they want to talk to Jehovah's Witnesses that come to their house, that they should have these jotted down on the inside of their Bible cover or something. They can sit down with them and just don't get in a debate. Just say, so how does a force do that? How does a force? And just pile those things on and say, you, you know, you're going way, you're, you're making something be what it can't be. A force can't be these things. Right. Um, yeah, you're right. Personhood is the right term. Then you have, uh, we have some biblical data here to affirm now the deity of the Holy Spirit, meaning he is God. <laughs> so the clearest passage, I think, is Acts 5, 1 through 4. Um, and the point here is to notice the parallel between the language of God and the language of the Holy Spirit. So in Acts 5, 1 through 4, it says, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge, and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So here at the very end in verse 4, he says, you have not lied to men, but to God. And just a few verses prior, he says, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. Right. So there's equality here between the Spirit and God. Um, you want to pick up this next well, one? Well, the narrative goes on, though. In um, Notice the very clear Old Testament reference. Here, the Spirit is going to be equated as being God. And then in the New Testament, it's confirmed in 2 Corinthians 3, 17. Um, so in Acts 5, 7 through 9, um, it says, now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was a price. Little liar. Um, <laughs> and, and, and Peter said to her, why is it that you've agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? But then you look at another passage in 2 Corinthians 3.17. It says that the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Yeah, so you have equality there as well. So the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's, there's liberty. So again, you're seeing here that the Holy Spirit is clearly God. There's, there's deity being attributed to him. Right, because he's saying the Lord is the Spirit, and, and just above in the Acts passage, he says the Spirit of the Lord. Well, the Spirit of the Lord is not just a force, but he is the Lord exactly. in 2 Corinthians. Yeah, so, okay. yeah, that makes it more explicit. Um, the Spirit also possesses divine attributes. So you've got things like omnipresence in Psalm 139, 7 through 10. You did a whole sermon on that, or two sermons, or three. No, I did 139 in one sermon. It was one, not two. No, I did two on one nine or two on Psalm nineteen. Nineteen, that's yeah. right. Uh, regardless, it says, <laughs> "Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there, your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me." So you you can't 
get away from God, and and the Spirit is specifically being stated there as God, and that you can't avoid Him. He's everywhere. Right. Um, how yeah, about omniscience? You, yeah, then you got omniscience. Um, so this is the idea that the Spirit knows all things. So uh, we have a few references here that you can get in the show notes, but 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 11 says, for to us, God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. And so there again, he, there's just equation with deity. I mean, he, he knows all things, and so he possesses these attributes that typically we in theology one at least, attribute to God in general. Right. But here the Spirit explicitly possesses these. And, and that last line, even though the thoughts of man no one knows except the Spirit of God, it's interesting because it's clearly personhood again, but it also says that there's this entire body of knowledge that no one else knows but the Spirit, mm -hmm. which is that omniscience aspect that, that the only one that can know the thoughts of God is God himself. Right. Um, uh, omnipotence is another one where in Luke 1, 35 to 37, the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she was called barren, or she who was called barren, barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And so again, it's equating the work of God with the Holy Spirit, and, and the Holy Spirit is also being equated with the power of the Messiah, which is omnipotence. Yeah, and then another one is uh, the Spirit possesses eternality, again, something which belongs to, to God. Hebrews 9, 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit uh, offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Um, now, there's some debate. Uh, the passage could be a reference to Jesus' own Spirit, um, but really it's best to see it as a reference here to the Holy Spirit himself. And there's some technical discussions on this. If you're one who cares, um, I'd recommend Graham Cole's book, He Who Gives Life from Foundations of Evangelical Theology series. Uh, I think he gives probably the best defense of this position. All right, so along with those, we also have the idea that the spirit participates in what we would call just divine activities. Uh, quick example is creation. So right away in Genesis 1-2, it's the Spirit of God who is moving over the surface of the waters. He's sustaining in creation that which has been decreed into existence. In Psalm 104-20, it says, you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. So not only is, was the spirit present in the beginning, uh, but he was also the one who was sus helping sustain it right. uh, in some way. Um, regeneration, where he causes life from that which is dead. So uh, the, the whole passage in John 3, 1 through 8, that there was that man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. Why? For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, uh, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Um, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Why? That that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So do not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. And then he gives that illustration. The wind blows wherever it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you don't, you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So being explicitly stated that you're being born by the Spirit. And then Titus 3.5 seals it. He says, uh, God saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Um, also, we see the Spirit involved in the resurrection of human bodies, Romans 8, 11. But if the Spirit of him uh, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies 
through his spirit who dwells in you. So again, it's an activity of God, and here it is being attributed to the spirit. Uh, also, the spirit receives divine honor. Um, that is, he, he's named alongside both the father and the son. Again, we see that in that Matthew 28 passage, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the singular name of the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, and then also in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, uh, which is uh, an apostolic benediction of Paul, uh, he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. So very Trinitarian, yeah. um, but there's, there's equality there between the Son, the Father, and the Spirit. Um, now, th these previous two points that we just uh, talked about affirm um, the deity of the Holy Spirit. Um, that is, he, he possesses divine attributes and also participates in divine activities. Um, so since the Holy Spirit is divine, uh, here's the question. Uh, how do we treat and respond to the Holy Spirit as a divine person? Um, there, there is much reverence and worship for the Father and the Son, but the Spirit seems to be abused, um, treated in a careless manner all the time. Well, that's kind of what the charismatic movement, and I'm using that in the broadest sense possible, um, tries to say is that they try to say that what we're doing is we're bringing the honor back to the spirit by, you know, crying out spirit of the living God fall upon us and, and all of that stuff. Uh, because in many ways, let's face it. We talk a lot about Jesus. We talk a lot about the father, but the spirit is right. You know, what is it? So how, how do we deal with that? Well, there's some ways. The first thing is that we revere the spirit because he is the fullness of God. Uh, but what we don't do is, therefore, in an effort to try to exalt him, we begin to attribute false or unbiblical works to the Spirit. Um, that's really what was behind what John MacArthur's, though I didn't think it was that helpful in some ways, his whole strange fire thing. He's like, look, you're, you're attributing things of the, to the Spirit that are blasphemous, mm -hmm. and that's, that's wicked. Um, we don't do that, we, or we ought not. We don't make jokes about the Spirit. Uh, we do not seek to manipulate or unleash the Spirit, uh, either in our lives or other, others' lives. We do not interact with the Spirit, however we feel we want to interact, but only in the manner which God has prescribed. And that's because He's holy. He's God. He's not just the Spirit. He's the Holy Spirit. He's God, right? So again, the Spirit is the fullness of God, and even a cursory reading of the Old Testament will reveal how God demands to be respected and approached as holy at all times. Yeah. And then second, we should praise the Spirit for His faithfulness, just like we would the Father, just like we would the Son, so also we should the Spirit. Um, so we should worship Him as God. Um, this requires that we view Him in his rightful, and here's the fancy word, ontological position within the Trinity. And you have to remember back to our episodes on theology proper um, to remember what we mean by that. But he, it, it, in short, he's fully God. His um, being. His is, essence. Yeah, yeah. What he is, is God. Yeah. Um, we should interact with him as scripture has prescribed, therefore. Um, so this requires that we view him. If you're going to do that, you got to view him in his biblical functional position within the Trinity. Um, so for example, the spirit is not the father. So we don't pray to the spirit. Um, Jesus instructions in Matthew 6, 8 through 13 are very clear on that. We, when you pray, pray like this, our father, which yeah. are in heaven. Um, the spirit is not the son. So we don't thank the spirit for dying on the cross or atoning for our sin. Um, Rather, there are other works of the Spirit that belong to him and him alone, and those are what he ought to be praised for. I did a long time ago. Someday I'll see if I can still find it. I did a, um, I did a, basically it's a flow chart, and what I was showing was what the Spirit did and, and how the Spirit functioned just functionally within the body of Christ and um, it was it, what was really interesting was that he's always he's in through around above, uh, you know, uh, all things that are at work. But he's never the focus. Uh, you know, the the spirit is always directing your attention to Christ or the Father. Uh, and the and what I found interesting is that the son was never directing the focus to the spirit. 
the son was always focusing it to father. the father. Yeah. And so everything was flowing toward the father. Uh, the son was always directing it to the father, and the spirit's always directing it to Christ, who then moves you on to the father. So in a the, in the sense, he is never the focus of it. We're never focused on, oh, this is a spirit doing these things. But it, the better our theology is, the more aware that he is, in fact, always there. Yeah. And once you become aware of that theologically, you, without even realizing it, you include in your mind the third person of the Trinity because you realize the whole reason I'm convicted right. and broken and I'm coming to the Son and confessing and thanking the Father I can enter the throne room of grace is because of Spirit. Right. You know, that's, it, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And so I think that helps, it may, may help some people who are like, I have to somehow consciously, constantly speak about the Spirit. Well, the Bible doesn't do it that way. I mean, it, he, he's, his task and his purpose is to work in that quiet but wonderful way to move you toward the Son and the Father. So yeah. I don't know if that will help people. Right. Yeah. And, and so it's, but it's appropriate to praise him or thank him for. And actually, I would say a right way to do it theologically is thank the Father for the work of the Spirit. Right. Um, well, and we require that in our when we ask people to pray in, in our service, and we ask them to write out their prayers, the one thing we always ask them for is a Trinitarian prayer. Yeah. And part of it is, but we're almost always in some way acknowledging the Father has given us the Spirit who then brings us into this whatever the, the thing that we're thinking, that he's given us the word, that we're illumined with the word, that we're convicted, um, that we're empowered, that we're worshiping because of the work of the Spirit. So it's right to acknowledge him. It's just we shouldn't fixate on him because right. he's not the focus. He's always directing focus off of himself and onto um, the Father, ultimately. Yeah. So you also have some technical words. I'm, I'm going to do the first one because uh, I can pronounce it. Okay, go for it. <laughs> And then I'll give it over to you. Um, so what's that spirit's relationship with the other members? Now, this is where it can get a little technical. Other um, members of the Trinity. What did I say? Just other members. Yeah, of the Trinity. Thank you. Um, so just bear with us as we kind of wander around in this part. Um, <laughs> you have the Adotheos. He is the God of himself, uh, he, meaning he's not dependent on the Father for his deity. He's not dependent on the Son for his deity. He's not dependent on the Father and the Son together for his deity. He is simply God himself. He is autotheos. He is um, he is self-existent. He is a God of himself. Yeah. Um, we're not looking at somehow he becomes God because God, the Father, made him exactly. God or yeah. something like that. Yeah, and this stuff can, some people can be turned off by talking about this stuff like, oh, this is just technical, philosophical, blah, blah, blah. This is actually historic Christian orthodoxy. So if you don't believe this stuff, you're not a Christian. No, in fact, they used to have fistfights over this back in the third, <laughs> 300s or third century, whenever it was. You know, this is, I mean, seriously got violent because it's like, yeah. you know, we're talking about heresy and tr- versus orthodoxy. and Yeah, and this is the stuff that the early church was catechized on. And so everyone knew this. This is part of the role of the church was to teach the people these things. And so while it sounds like, oh, this just belongs in a sem- seminary class, well, in, in the earlier church— this was just normal part of church life. This is what you were taught. Yeah. Um, so you, you did autotheos. Um, he is God of himself. Um, then you have hamausios, um, which is, and this is some technical stuff, um, but he, meaning the spirit, is of the same substance, essence, and nature as the father and the son. Um, he, he is the same substance, essence, and nature. Um, so Hamousia says this, the son is what the father and the spirit are. The spirit is what the father and the son are. And so all three persons of the Trinity are of the same exact nature as each other. Why? Because God is really just one. <laughs> so that's where your, your mind just sort of blows up a little bit. Um, specifically, Hamousia says this, all of the father's attributes. So think about love, wrath, justice, holiness, omnipotence omnipresence, omniscience, stuff like that, belong to the Son and the Spirit in the exact same way as they belong to the Father. Um, So to say it maybe negatively, the Spirit 
does not possess anything that the Father and the Son do not possess, and the Spirit is not deficient on anything that the Father and Son possess. And all that, what, what's going on there is when they were trying to figure out and ex- explain this, the Trinity is they're, they were trying to avoid the, the pitfalls of somehow making one, one of the persons of the Trinity less than or different or different or of a lesser quality or something like that. Yeah. So again, it gets into the whole error because this whole thing was going on because of Arianism and which is the old version of Jehovah's witnesses, right? That Jesus was God, but he was a God. He was some different sort of God. He was not the father. He was not Yahweh or Jehovah's they would say. Right. Um, So that's why they have to go through all these pains to say this. Uh, so that we don't inadvertently end it up into heresy. Um, I would tell people, well, no, I wouldn't. Uh, there's a, the that Lutheran satire oh, sure. on YouTube, but that's about the sun, not the spirit. But it's they do a really good job of P- Patrick. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> modalism. Patrick. That's modalism, Patrick. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so we're using some weird terms, but these are old. So so homo just means same. It's where we get the word homo from. And then usios um, is just essence or being. So when you say homo or homoousios, same essence or being. Th- this is contrasted with homoousios, which is uh, of similar substance. So homoousios means of the same substance. Homoousios means of similar substance. So an example uh, of this would be a daughter. So my daughter is of similar substance to me. I mean, she's got the same DNA, uh, hereditary genes, things like that as as both me and her mother. Um, and yet it's impossible for a daughter to be of the same substance as her father and mother. Um, so, so this is not merely physical. This would include even things like attributes, characteristics, values, things like that. And so what we're saying is that the spirit is not homoousios, that is of similar substance, but rather he is homoousios, he is of the same substance. So do you think they're blessed? Yeah, some are going to sleep awesome the night after. Some, some actually enjoy it. Some are like, huh? Well, we're doing theology, so yeah. if you don't like it, turn it off. Yeah, but don't. Instead, <laughs> like, share, and tell your friends. Tell a friend. <laughs> <laughs> but, but someday you will appreciate it, and, and it will be when you actually make the mistake I say that tongue in cheek somewhat, but of sitting down with the Joe's witness and they start talking about this thing and you're like, oh my gosh, what, what was, what did they say in faith and fable? And all of a sudden it'll become a lot more important. You know, when you're trying to just get your kid to eat broccoli, you're like, you're not thinking homoousius, right. but, but you are when you're talking to somebody about their soul and they have a false version of God. So, yeah. so how are the three persons of the Godhead different. Okay, so now we go, and this will harken back to our Trinitarian discussion. Um, Ontologically, they're the same, right? They're God. Their essence. Their essence. But economically, meaning how they function or their functionality or their functional roles, uh, they're different. And so we would agree with Augustine or Augustine. Have we ever decided, which, which, which one do you like? I like Augustine. Like Augustine? Well, I used to like Augustine, and then I thought Augustine sounded cooler. Huh. All right. Probably, you know, probably D.A. Carson would say, no, it's Augustine. I thought we were just going with Gussie. (laughs) Gus. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Or Augie. (laughs) Augie. Oh, never mind. Uh, All right. Augustine, um, he he, he says it is right to speak of the inseparable operations of God, i.e., what is God doing for his glory? So God is not merely Trinity, but he is triune. And so what all three members of the Godhead are doing, they're doing, and I love this. This, if, If you let this one run in your brain, it gets cool, that they're doing in complete unity and for you and unity for a single purpose of bringing glory to the one triune God. I, yeah. I would add the word triune in there. So you never have the spirit off there doing the spirit doing his own little thing. And the father like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what are you going to do? He's got, yeah. Right. <laughs> um, every, they're, they're always perfectly working together. And wherever you see one person of the Trinity at work, the other two are there, even if they're not explicitly stated. Right. It's, yeah. So when, when I did that stuff in the Holy Spirit, um, 
couple of years ago. I, I, I tried to show how the Bible itself begins with this, even in the creation account. So in the beginning, God, the Father, created the heavens and the earth. Um, and then it says that the earth was formless and void. So now you see the spirit hovering over the waters. But so where's the, the second person of the Trinity in that? When God said. When God said, he is the divine word. Um, and so you see that there. And so everything that he was doing in creation, the triune God was at work. Now they each had three functionally different roles, but it was all for one unified right, purpose. Right, right. So we also would then affirm that it's appropriate to speak of the differentiation, though, of roles within the Godhead. So you have primary roles like Father is Creator, Son is Savior, Spirit is Sanctifier, and we can see those. All three are involved in all three primary roles, but it's appropriate to speak of their unique roles, maybe almost like their front and center yeah. um, within those operations. So example, <clears throat> Uh, ontologically, the one eternal God is by his nature, the resurrection. That's what John eleven twenty five 25 says. Uh, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. But so that's ontologically, he is the resurrection, right? Uh, but economically, the father is the one who raises the son by the power of the spirit, according to Romans 8, 11. So if by the spirit of him, meaning the father, who raised Jesus, who's the Son, from the dead dwells in you. He, the Father, who raised Christ Jesus, the Son, from the Spirit, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit, who dwells in you. So it, the more that you become, I would only beg the, our listeners, the more you read the Bible, the more you're going to pick up on this. If you're consciously paying attention, you're going to, you're, people saying, well, there's only like three or four verses. No, it's just, from beginning to end, it's just woven seamlessly into uh, the Bible of the, the economic interactions of the Trinity. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the triune God. Um, the three persons of the Godhead are also different, um, not only in their economic roles, but also in their eternal relationship. Um, so again, just humor us for a moment. We're going to get a little bit technical. Um, so, so we affirm that the Father is not generated, but rather he is said to be eternally unbegotten. Now, <laughs> these are technical terms in theology. Yeah, these are theological terms yeah. to try to explain what is seen in the Word. Yeah. So, so let me repeat it. We affirm that the Father is not generated, but rather he is said to be eternally unbegotten. Uh, at the same time, we affirm that the Son is generated— and he is said to be eternally begotten by the Father. And if you start to say, well, how, we're going to be like, um, I mean, we can give some indications, but. Yeah, the, this is the deep part of theology when you're talking Trinity. Yeah, and you have to walk carefully. There is mystery here for sure. Um, so, for instance, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So here we have a clear statement that the son is begotten. Um, so, uh, and that Orthodox, God there is the father. Right. So Orthodox Trinitarian theology says that the son is begotten. The father is unbegotten. Right. Um, John 5, 26, for just as the father has life in himself, even so he gave to the son also to have life in himself. Which is crazy. And again, you're like, Okay. I, I want to understand that more, but they, they don't tell you anymore. Yeah, right. So now let me say here, this is not a statement, John 5, 26, which says, for just as the father has life in himself, even so he gave to the son also to have life in himself. That is not a statement about the father's eternal unbegottenness. No, or, or it is, it a, is statement a statement about his eternal unbegottenness, but also the father um, granting eternal sonship life to the son this is not speaking of the son being created somehow right um because he is an eternal reality he is not created yeah, ontologically he's god which is ontologically uncreated correct yeah um so it's not speaking about how the son was somehow created when it says that the father gave life to him to his son rather it is speaking of the son having received his sonship um what does that mean <laughs> um, and again, this is where division and some pretty fierce debate can rise up again. Yeah. Um, so 
specifically in receiving his sonship, the son now becomes the son of the father, and the father now becomes the father of the son. Um, again, the technical term is eternal generation. Um, this was something given or granted to the son. Um, now, what's important to understand is the language of father and son has nothing to do with creating or being created. So we, we don't call him the father because he created the son, and we don't call him the son because he was created by the father. Uh, rather, understand these terms as strictly relational terms to speak of the technical relationship between the first and the second persons of the Trinity. That's what we're talking about when we say uh, fatherhood or sonship. Um, so, so you should understand the father and the son as titles which clarify how the two members relate to one another. Again, nothing to do with creating or being created. Both the father and the son are eternally existent and there was never a time in which they were not. Um, they, they were always eternally self-existent, and here's where it gets complex, as the one eternally non-made God. <laughs> so you can chew on that one for a while. Um, 1 John 5.18 says this, We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Um, now, here, the first part of this verse is speaking of regeneration in reference to believers. So it says, we know that no one who is born of God, that's talking about um, uh, regeneration, Regeneration. Yeah. that no one who is born of God sins, but he, meaning the, the son, son, who was born of God, keeps him. The one who is born of God. Believers. Yes. Yeah. So it's these pronouns are what are confusing. So the first part of the verse is speaking of regeneration in reference to believers, but then the second part is speaking of generation in reference to the second person of the Trinity. Um, now, this is the classical Trinitarian position. Um, there, there are some scholars out there. John Feinberg would be one. You can read um, No One Like Him. This is his doctrine of God. That's the, like big big, big old book. Yeah, well, he can't write a book under 800 pages for the life of we, We're big fans of John Feiberg, um, and we both kind of grieve that a lot of people seem to kind of dismiss him, but he is an incredible theologian. He is. A good man, too. Good we know thinker. him personally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, I would disagree with him on this point, though, Yeah, uh, having well, said all that. <laughs> but you know what's, what's nice is that you can disagree with him and, yeah. and have a good, rousing talk about it i mean he and and you're also better have done your homework because he's like a computer yeah it's kind of freaky <laughs> he's got these like inputs and outputs that his brain does weird things well, i and, think he's debated and interacted with so many people so long that you know it's not like you're going to throw him a curveball that he hasn't seen and so it's just that like that seasoned veteran ball player who's seen them all yeah you know and now we're just going to play the game because right. you know you're a great pitcher and I'm a great hitter and we're going to do this. I mean, I just I just I'm always blessed whenever we hear him. Uh, yeah. Even if I walk away not agreeing with him on something, I'm always wiser. And you know why? Yeah. Um, yes. So yeah. I had him for a couple courses and he taught he taught I mean he taught systematic theology. He's the head of the department at Trinity. Um, but he he always had the difficult courses like ethics that's just a nasty one that's hard to teach because there's so many different views and positions um but he would state his position and then you'd get the question that like everyone's thinking or if not everyone's thinking some really sharp guy in the class asks and you're like bam got him and all of a sudden he just does this perfect syllogism that <laughs> yep. just makes his question go away. Well, and I had him on continuity and discontinuity, and here we all, most of us were graduated with our degree already in theology, and he starts hitting us with questions. And by the time he was done asking all the questions, we all kind of were shutting up and saying, we should really start listening to him, because we realized that though we, we had a degree and we had done a lot of thinking, we had only actually gotten in the pool. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, there's another side to that pool. This is the kitty pool. And we're in the pool. That's cool. But there's it gets deeper. And he's been swimming over there and he 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 came over to us. 
and said, all right, let, let me take you now into the stuff where you're having to dance on your toes. Yeah. And you're like, just, or drown, you know? Sure. Yeah, but again, with incredible grace. Right. So with this whole generation, regeneration stuff, um, just understand that Christians are said to be regenerate. That is, they were dead and they needed to be made remade alive, if you will. Um, we don't use that language with the son because he didn't, he wasn't dead in his sin and needed to be made alive. He was just eternally generated from eternity past. Um, so some scholars like John Feinberg will say that um, they believe that the first part is... First uh, John 5.18. Yeah, in 5.18, they'll understand that the son received his status of sonship at the incarnation. Right. Um, some will then say even like baptism. And others will say it is resurrection. Yeah. Um, but I, I would say they'll struggle to give an answer to the meaning of John 5.18. Um, specifically, if the first part is not talking about physical birth, but spiritual in this idea of regeneration, then a consistent hermeneutic, I would say, must understand the second part as also spiritual. Um, therefore, it can't be a reference to the incarnation, but to the eternal granting of sonship. Right. So if you forgot what 5.18 says, it says, we know, 1 John 5.18, we know that no one is born of God. That's a spiritual rebirth. Right. We know that no one who is born of God sins or is in the state of practicing sin. Um, but he, Christ, who was born of God, keeps him. Uh, so if the first born of God is a spiritual rebirth, um, the second born of God, that's speaking of Christ, because he was not reborn, um, is a spiritual yeah. birth. That's the and argument. since he's eternal, right. um, that, that's an eternal reality. All right. So we also then would affirm that the Spirit proceeds both from the Father and the Son. So just as the, father, uh, the Son receives his eternal sonship from the Father, so the Spirit receives his eternal person of the Spirit from the Father and the Son. Uh, this is a technical term called the eternal procession. And this was a huge controversy uh, that split the East from the West. It's called the Philoque Clause. And this is where the Greek Orthodox, the Greek church went away and did their own thing. I still think, though, it was politics. I think they use this as the excuse. Have we talked about that? No, but that seems about... Well, the Roman church was now rising up into power. And so they were becoming... The Bishop of Rome, there, there was no Pope yet. Uh, the Bishop of Rome was becoming the preeminent one. And there was this huge power between the East and West. And we saw that again when we went, went to Greece and into Serbia and whatnot. We saw there's still a lot of that holdover there. Um, and so the Roman Bishop and that whole school of thought argued for the eternal procession. And the Greek church was holding, and the Greek bishop, they were holding to um, that he was not eternally proceeding from both the father and the son. Just the father. Just the father. Yeah. And so the, I think, and that, that's where they had a big spat, and they just said, fine, we're going to go and do our own thing. And they've never gotten back together, but it's not really over theology. I think it was really that they recognized power is being taken from them, and they weren't going to do it, so they went and did their own thing. But Sounds like good church people. Yeah, I mean, I think we're still doing that. <laughs> um, but it was a huge thing. Uh, the East, again, thought the Spirit proceeded only from the Father. The West th thought the Spirit proceeded from both the Father and the Son. Um, it's an important distinction because it helps us understand that the Spirit leads a person to God only through Jesus Christ. So if the Spirit only proceeds from the Father, it's possible to have access to God apart from the Son. But since the Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son, there's no accessing the Father without the Son. So there is an important point that's Absolutely. trying to be made, is yeah. that the way the Spirit brings you to the Father is through the Son. He doesn't just jump the Son and bring you right to the Father. Right. Uh, and so this is the reason that Eastern religions end up so being bad. You, you can access the Father through these through mysticism, which is huge in Orthodox, Eastern Orthodoxy. The Spirit works through patron saints and iconoclasm. There's no true need for the Son. This is also why we speak against Christian mysticism, because it actually has its roots there, uh, which reject that philoque uh, clause. And it's very, very popular in the charismatic movement. So they're looking for that deeper, more spiritual experience via the Spirit. 
Uh, while it may make you feel close to God, they are actually simply practicing what the Eastern mystics practice. The Eastern mystics also think they are close to God, but they're not. Right. Um, but this is not a biblical role of the Spirit. And the whole world of Christian mysticism, actually, we would argue, is deceptively false. Uh, we have literally no love for Eastern mysticism in any way, do we? Um, and so it has no biblical warrant. And if you have ever been overseas and seen Eastern religion firsthand, you're going to understand why it's evil. It's 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 shocking. Yeah. Yep. Um, so this lays down some of the, the basic groundwork for showing that the spirit is fully God in every sense that the father and the son are fully God. And so as a result, we really want to stress that the spirit possesses personhood. Uh, it's kind of a hard shift in some people's minds um, because, you know, we refer to the third member of the Trinity as the spirit, that, that language, it just, it tends to depersonalize him. He's a spirit, he's a force, he's something we tap into. And remember, he's not that, um, He's not a power that we can harness, control, unleash, use at our beck and call. Um, he, he's not the way that, again, we tap into that eternal mind of God. I would actually say that that's sorcery, yeah. um, divination, things like that. He, he is not a force or a presence that we experience or feel or sync up with. This is something also true in many charismatic circles in like worship services or in private prayer times, things like that. Um, they're trying to experience God or feel him more powerfully. Um, rather, he's just as much a person of the Godhead as the Father and the Son, and so he should be uh, revered and worshipped as such. Um, he has a unique role and function within the Godhead. Remember the, those economics, but he is still completely equal in his essence. That is his ontology. So... Um, Big takeaway is that the third member of the Trinity is fully and truly the sovereign God of the universe, and therefore we would say not one to be trifled with. And so it's important we get the spirit right, lest we be guilty of poor worship at best, you know, having a lot of zeal and passion, but not in accordance to true knowledge to um, take Paul's statement out of context, <laughs> or uh, idolatry in false worship or heresy at worst. Uh, and so it's very important that we elevate him to the proper place in our minds and hearts. So next time we'll talk about the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, which is a huge and massively important topic, and one that I would say many are not familiar no, with today. No, he comes forefront in most people's minds in the New Testament. So Yeah. So until then, make sure to tune in, join the conversation. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the Holy Spirit. And don't forget to like, share, comment, rate, and review. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And tell a friend. <laughs>